welcome to more of a comment than a question. I'm Rachel Hartman, and with me as always is Paul Connor, my friend and co-host. How's it going, Paul? I'm okay, Rachel. I got to say that I'm a bit intimidated. <laughs> why, why is that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to co-host the podcast with uh, a genuine big shot now, published in... <laughs> Published in Nature. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank on you. Your, uh, publication through the week. Have you been just strutting around uh, UNC, knocking stuff over? And <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, yeah, I don't know. It. I feel like it's just been such a dragged out process um, because we submitted the paper in like December and then it went through a couple of rounds of like, one was like, kind of minor revisions but you know it's like a little bit of work and then the next one was like super like minor things but each one took like forever like we submitted it you know within two days and then Mm. waited for like two months Mm. um and each time it was kind of like we already knew it was getting accepted because it was like just you know a few small things Mm -hmm. so there was never like this moment where it was like oh it got accepted we should celebrate now it was kind of like just we have to now figure out the copyright issues for the image. And now we have to figure out the, like getting all the affiliations. Right. And it's yeah, but I'm glad that I don't have to work on it anymore and that it's done. And yeah, it was, it was nice to have it out. Um, honestly, you, I feel. So, <laughs> I was just thinking like, so we did that whole podcast kind of being critical of nature, human behavior uh, and the editorial uh <laughs> And you had a paper under review during that. Was that? Well, I mean, it was, it was kind of like already in press. So, I I mean, they're not going to like withdraw it because we're being critical of a different thing that, you know, probably. um, (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. No, well, anyway, anyway, congratulations. Thank you. Has anything exciting happened in your life or? No, no, not really. Nice. Um, um, my son's been sick. It's actually been a really horrible week, but I don't want to talk about it. Uh, we should, uh, all right, we should we introduce just... our guest. <laughs> so this is quite a special episode of more of a comment than a question. For the first, I think it's the first time we've had two guests on. No, I lie. I forgot about you and Manny again. <laughs> Sorry. We, <laughs> we've had multiple guests on before. That's not why it's special. But it's special because, uh, yeah, we we have um, some uh, kind of uh, young and enthusiastic scholars on, uh, which is quite a change from the norm of just sort of older, cynical, burnt-out people. So um, Also, so finally, today- have some diversity on the pod. <laughs> Yeah, we're interrupting the steady stream of like white dudes. Yep. For uh, yeah, a, li- a little bit of a change. So we've got um, Annalisa Meyer today. She's a second year grad student at the uh, City University of New York at the Graduate Center there. Uh, she studies a range of things, racial inequality, intersectionality, uh, perceptions of biracial people. Annalisa, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on finally. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. And we also have uh, our first ever lab manager guest, <laughs> Carlos. Um, how do I pronounce your last name? Is it Rebolar or Rebollar? Do we say the L or do we? 
Yeah, that's a funny question. Um, you can say Raboyar, or you can say Raballer, Raboyar, Raballar. I don't know. <laughs> say it the way you want. It, it all works. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, well, welcome to the podcast. So uh, you are lab manager there. You're Rachel's manager down there at uh, UNC um, in the deepest beliefs lab, a.k.a. Kurt Gray's lab. We were just chatting about how useless lab names are. Uh, and you're planning to apply for grad school this cycle uh, to potentially next study. Cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, next cycle. Sorry potentially study the root causes of partisan animosity so yeah thanks for coming on of course thanks for inviting me and um i'm gonna can spend the rest of the year trying to convince carlos not to go to grad school so we'll <laughs> see if <laughs> if he still wants to go by this time next yeah. year then you'll know that he's really really committed and you should definitely accept him to your lab if there's any uh pis listening to this yeah which is, and that kind of is a nice lead into uh, the subject matter that we kind of wanted to talk about. So, um, so Rachel, why do you think Carlos should not go to grad school? I mean, you went to grad school. Everybody here went to grad school except for Carlos. Like, what? What's your argument as to to why he shouldn't? Um. So, what I see in Carlos is a bright, enthusiastic, passionate person who wants to make a difference in the world. Um, Carlos is, I don't know if, how much you want to talk about this, but he's a vegan and like talks about that a fair amount. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, That's obligatory. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, you know, he's passionate about uh, reducing partisan animosity and all sorts of other like social environmental issues and um, uh, when we've talked about grad school, he has sort of expressed like wanting to do something to make a difference in the world. And I feel like this is just not the path for someone who wants to to do that. Um, I think, and I think that there like this is should be a nuanced conversation and I'm looking forward to like hearing everyone's points of view and I'm leaving the door open to change my mind about some of this stuff, but coming into it, I think that we like grad school and uh, being a professor, being a researcher is really just about like understanding like basic science. Um, there's some applied work that can be more, you know, like some research is more applied. Um, but when it, but that still is sort of like getting at like understanding effects and mechanisms and making sure that things work and things like that. And I think that you really like your mindset should be, I'm trying to get at the truth, no matter what it is. And I'm trying to understand how the world works. And if I don't like the results, I still have to, you know, accept them and, and try to publish them. And like, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't have a strong agenda and goal of I'm trying to change something. I'm trying to do something in the world. I think there are activists whose role it is to do that, but that should be kind of separate from academia. Okay. Carlos, I'm going to give you the right of reply here. 
what's <laughs> what's what's your perspective when you hear Rachel <clears throat> say this that uh no you sh- I guess the point Rachel is like you don't think people should go to grad school with a clear idea of some social change that they want to engineer they should ha- rather have like a question they're curious about or um yeah something that they sort of don't know the answer to and they want to find the answer to rather than a clear goal of here's how I want to change here's how I want to change society um yeah so and Carlos, I, I just would- let me just add to that real quick I also think like just being like what would make a good researcher is someone who's really passionate about the process like if you really enjoy reading a bunch of papers like doing if you're in a stats heavy fields just like doing a lot of analyses digging into the you know so like that should be the thing that you're passionate about as opposed to the end result or what you're trying to go for but okay carlos Hello. <laughs> um, uh, where do I start? Um, so the first thing to say is I'm also, I don't think I'm as set in my thoughts as like Rachel maybe thinks I am. Um, as of right now, the plan is, yeah, go to grad school, uh, make change in the world. Um, but, you know, I've been grappling with these questions about, like, is academia the right place for activism uh, since I kind of started this job, like, a few months ago? So, yeah, I definitely, like, the end goal is to make the world a better place. And I think that, like, there's value judgments you have to to make that, like, can't be, I don't know, empirically proven um, like you can't prove that one thing is preferable over the other, but like if there's consensus on a certain thing, like partisan animosity is bad, then I don't see why it shouldn't be acceptable for you to pursue the question, how do we reduce partisan animosity? Um, and so, you know, I... I also do very much enjoy the research process so far, I think. Um, I've I've got some issues with it. It feels like a very lonely process. Um, And I'm a pretty social person, I think. I like talking to people and not sitting behind a computer all day. Um, Just like reading all the time. But yeah, the point I'm trying to get at is like, I think that there might be a way that that research could make a difference. And if it's not the best way to do that, I'd sure like to know. I, I don't mind not spending five years in grad school if I can still make a difference some way else. Okay. Annalisa, do you, I, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I think you bring up some good points, which is like you mentioned how the research process can feel isolating which is interesting because I think, at least from my background, being trained as a social psychologist, where we're primarily doing online surveys and experiments, especially as a function of the COVID-19 pandemic, that isolation has just grown and grown in addition to the growing pains of being a grad student largely in isolation. So when thinking about 
my activism, most, the height of that was really as an undergraduate student where I was well connected to student life, to community, to organizations, where it was easy and possible to do this work. You know, it was expected that you would go to weekly meetings and like organize with folks on campus. And also there were other organizations constantly in crosstalk, you know, with unified goals and things to be working on. We would organize marches on campus or we'd host workshops. And that felt really tangible when thinking about, okay, I'm making a broader impact on the world or like at a minimum I'm speaking to my community, other graduate students, undergraduate students, um, faculty, staff. And then when you get to grad school, I've noticed, at least especially in New York City, where the vibe, if you will, of going to college in a big city is like the 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 town itself is your campus. You don't really have a set structure. Um, it's really just a building in the middle of Manhattan, at least at the grad center. And I can say that's true for other universities in New York city. Um, so it's kind of the onus is on you to build those connections, um, in a way that an undergrad, I felt like those connections were facilitated for you and then simply showing up was sufficient. But as a grad student, I've noticed that the isolation only increases. And then on top of that, when the research you do is already isolating. So again, like doing online surveys and experiments where you're not actually seeing physical people day to day, it can really grind how, you know, the perception of you making an impact suddenly just deteriorates. You're not seeing real people, um, you're getting disconnected from the work, and then you get into a moment where all of a sudden you're like, am I even making a difference in the world? Hmm. Yeah, Annalisa, I'm wondering, um, could you maybe talk a little bit about why you decided to go to grad school as opposed to, you know, pursuing some other a more direct activism role? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I always tell people that, like, for me, grad school was something, quite frankly, I stumbled into. It wasn't, I know for some people who are traditionally trained, you know, they, there's people out there that for years have dreamed about going to grad school, you know, and one day being a scientist, one day being an academic. I don't think I fall into those camps. Quite frankly, when I was graduating, um, I wasn't even in a traditional, so I was in a lab in undergrad that, again, I stumbled upon. Um, there was just a series of events that happened that, like, things just clicked into place, and so grad school felt like the natural step. And I've talked to other grad students in my program that felt that way as well. You know, it wasn't like this strong desire or interest to go to grad school specifically, but it just made sense. And when I was in undergrad, I remember graduating and thinking like, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? 
grad school was one of those options, but there were other things that I entertained. You know, I was applying to like, for instance, I did a lot of campaign work in undergrad. So working on like actual, like local elections or state and federal elections. And so I was applying to maybe work as like a canvasser or like a campaign manager. Um, I applied to work at like Planned Parenthood, for instance, with some of the work I was doing at the time with the Feminist Majority Leadership Alliance. And those things just didn't work out. Like jobs didn't call me back. I didn't get hired. And then I was like, okay, I could apply to grad school. That's another option. And ironically, my first time on the market, so applying to PhD programs, I was rejected from every program. And I had a moment where I was like, maybe this isn't the path that I should go down. And I was one year into a lab manager job, similar to Carlos. And I was like, is this where I'm going to stay or am I going to go? And while this was happening, the pandemic hit. And it just really upended my life, what I envisioned the future to be. And so disconnected again from the research process. I also had a grueling nature review, you know, publication process during the pandemic on research about the pandemic. And I was just kind of like, if for every project I'm going to do, it's possible that there could be a full pandemic from start to finish of that project. Like, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like it's, we started that we started data collection, I believe in like April, May of 2020. It got published. Like it feels, it feels like a couple months ago. Like at that point, by the time the data was even available, the pandemic, like the height of it was just already over. It felt like we had missed the mark. A lot of people came out in the scientific community and were like, you can't just be publishing papers in response to something when there's established work on this. And, you know, there's a real need in the community to do other things than just publish papers that, you know, 50 people are going to cite. And meanwhile, thousands of people have died. It just, there was a strong, strong, like, damn, what am I doing? And ironically, I applied again and I got into a program and now I'm here, but I will tell you, I grapple strongly, whether it's every semester, every week, especially because my program trains, you know, we're a basic and applied social psychology PhD program. We train for people to track into academia just as much as industry. We pride ourselves on that. And it's no secret or stigma affiliated with the fact that our alums will leave academia. And that's totally normal. It makes sense for the program. And it's something that I've obviously strongly considered, which is why I ended up coming to the grad center. But I think it's something I will continue to struggle with throughout my grad career. I think it's something a lot of grad students struggle with, whether they talk about it or not. And it's, you know, something that we should talk about because 
there is a strong stigma leaving academia once you're in it. And I've definitely felt that pressure pre-grad school and now even within grad school. So there's a lot there. I think it's worth maybe making a few distinctions. So, um, and Rachel, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this too, because for me, like there's, there's activism and then there's activism scholarship, right? So I know Annalisa, you've done a lot of like actual activism where, and I would put a lot of stuff in that boat, like say you're advocating for higher pay for grad students, even though Rachel, you're against that. My guess is you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily see it as a problem for somebody to be an academic, but then on the side to also be organizing around on campus around issues that they, they care about. Right. So I know Annalisa, you've done stuff um, like sexual violence, like the me too movement and stuff like that. So, and that, that stuff I see is that's quite where you're doing something like explicitly uh, activist because you care about an issue and it's really separate from the the research you're doing. Um, and I've done stuff like that too. I, like I started a group at Berkeley um, called psychologists for social justice, which I kind of cringe, <laughs> cringe at that name now. And, and we did, st- we did s- little stuff and it was just, it was separate from our research. And I think like, I'm completely fine with that. And I don't really see a problem with that. I think there are some slight issues when you like your department starts like making official statements in support of like one side of a contentious political issue. And we, we've talked about that, but if you're just doing stuff as an individual, I think it's completely fine. Um, yeah, I agree with that. So, and, but the other thing I would say is that I think there is a class of research that is kind of activist in the sense that it's trying to change the world, but it's, it's also pretty, pretty legit. Right. So like the work that Carlos is talking about wanting to do is like, okay, we explicitly have decided that we want to reduce partisan animosity. And so we're trying to like do science on what is the best way to do that. Right. So I would see that as not very different from I've explicitly decided I think the world would be better without cancer. So I'm trying to figure out what is the cure for cancer. But, and I think because if you're focused on this goal and you're explicit in that goal and people can see that that goal is, is just driving the project, there's less incentive to sort of fudge the results or be dishonest about the results. Because if Carlos honestly wants to reduce partisan animosity, he doesn't have much incentive. I mean, beyond the professional incentives of getting publications and stuff like that, he doesn't have much incentive to be dishonest about the results. So if you're just sort of explicitly saying, look, I think X is a problem and I'm researching how to reduce X, I actually think this is this is a kind of research that's, you know, it's obviously done with a goal of sort of changing society, but I think it, only in the sense that almost all research is like trying to, like trying to cure cancer or... Um, what what do you think, Rachel, about about that? Yeah, um, well, two points. One is like I totally agree about the whole like, you know spend your free time however you want. I think part of what I wanted to bring to this conversation is if you didn't want like your activism to just be you know a part time thing that you can do whenever you have free time, which mm-hmm. who has free time as a grad student, mm-hmm. um, then you might be feel more fulfilled and happy be happier if like activism was your actual job which it is for you know a lot of people in nonprofit organizations and uh political campaigns or whatever um 
And so I think that the part of what I'm saying is like, if as a person, you just are an activist at heart, then maybe you should be spending your full-time job, like doing something like that. Um, but to touch on your other point, I think that aside from the, well, maybe this is actually the like publication pressure thing. Uh, I feel like anyone who's trying to solve a problem is always going to have an incentive to continue to see the problem in the world, even if it isn't actually a big deal. And that's not unique to any of the like social justice activism or, you know, political polarization or whatever. Like it's true, I think for any issue. Um, and I don't think that it would, it should be a reason to not do research, but I think that it's something that researchers who care a lot about the issue that they're researching should keep in mind and just like really try to put in safeguards to ensure that that's not uh, sort of like tainting their view. Um, so like, you know, I mean, as an extreme example, like you were brought up like cancer research, if we essentially, you know, solved the problem and we, we had a cure, you know, for cancer or could prevent it. But, and like, I feel like cancer researchers would still be trying to look for it everywhere and kind of like over identifying things as mm -hmm. like, you know, this is actually, everything is cancerous. And it's just like, um, I, I obviously in, in like something like biological like that, it's a little bit harder to um, fudge, but when it comes to social issues, you know, if it, I, there's like, what comes to mind for me is uh, racial discrimination, which there obviously is a lot of still, but when research comes out that says, you know, we actually didn't find anything here. Um, like there's no, if anything, there's uh, reverse discrimination. Like this is, you know, I feel like researchers who are activists in towards reducing racial discrimination don't look at that and say, oh, okay, problem solved. Let me go find my next thing to work on. They look at it and say, oh, well, this research must not be good. This is obviously limited to the specific situation. There's, here's a million reasons why I'm going to ignore this and keep moving towards my goal. So I guess that's just like another piece of it to bring in is recognizing, like if you're an activist, being able to recognize what the problems are and be able to like be flexible about you know, identifying uh, solutions and what still needs work and what doesn't. Yeah. So, Carlos, say you go to grad school, become a professor, you, you make a career based on, like, ways of what's the best way to reduce partisan animosity. And then, you know, some, re some research comes out that suggests, oh, maybe partisan animosity is not such a, not such a big deal. Uh, yeah, do you think... I mean, like, I'm not sure this happens in the case of cancer, like in, in the case of diseases, if a disease is cured, I'm not sure that people invested in that. I mean, I guess everybody has to attract attention and funding. And so there is a vested interest for all researchers in um, convincing everybody that something is a, is a big problem. And, and that's interesting in social science, right? Because if you're researching racism, there's this kind of perverse incentive for you to continue uh, to sort of push push the view that racism is like a huge, a huge problem, right. And, and needs more funding and needs more attention and, 
and needs more research. Um, so similar, I guess, with partisan animosity, like if this becomes, if this becomes the central pillar of your career, now all of a sudden it's important for you that it remains a problem in this really weird, perverse, perverse way, or it's important for you that people perceive it as a problem. Like, yeah. So, but I mean, I don't know, Rachel, is like, is this, we should let Carlos respond, but I, I, I just wonder if this is like somewhat unavoidable or like, can you, cause everybody, all research has to be motivated by something like you people we, we, like everybody's researching something that they care about almost inevitably right so you or that they think is important so how how would you how would you avoid this issue yeah i'm gonna let carlos respond mm. but i'll just say i do i agree it is unavoidable and i just wanted to you know throw mm. it into the mix of things to consider but not saying you know this should prevent people from studying mm. anything because yeah that wouldn't work mm. Yeah. So I'll say to that second point that you made, Rachel, I, I think that is a worthy consideration, but I don't think that's a reason that somebody shouldn't go into academia. Um, the fact that like their problem might not exist in the future. Um, I would be pretty stoked if partisan animosity wasn't an issue anymore. Like that's the goal. Um, and yeah, uh, Paul, you said, uh, that, Research is always motivated by something, and it should be, and it should be motivated by a problem that exists in the world. Um, and so, you know, like a, a line of research I sort of sort of started trying to pursue whenever I first started this was like seeing whether partisan animosity is rooted in people believing that political opponents have evil motives. Like we just think that. Pro-choice people think that a pro-life person is pro-life because they want to control women and they want to like maintain the patriarchy. And, you know, I did a few surveys. Um, I wouldn't say this is conclusive evidence, but it seemed like people didn't think that, you know, like people don't think that others have evil motives. So I'm not going to try to solve that issue if it doesn't exist. Um, so, yeah, I think rachel that like that could be a problem that exists in academia um as a whole people are motivated to see the issues that they're trying to solve um i think that would be less of an issue for me i think the first point is maybe a more worthy talking point for me so you mentioned like why not do something more direct or if you want to be an activist instead of making it a part-time thing, why not make it a full-time thing? And I think my response to that is great question. Um, so for me, it was a matter of like back in high school, I don't think I cared too much about many social political issues. Um, I started college as a music major, and then I started learning a lot about racial issues um, and environmental issues, uh, veganism stuff. And, you know, I realized, like, why isn't change happening in all of these, like, really important areas? And 
the conclusion I came to was, you know, like we're, we're gridlocked and people don't compromise with each other because they're so divided. And so, you know, I guess I was thinking in a trickle down kind of way, like if we, if we treat the root problem, then people are going to be able to have better conversations about this. Um, and maybe we'll come to better solutions on all of these issues that I care about. Um, another th- thing that was sort of going into my thinking is like, there's lots of ways to do activism. And I want to know which ways are the most effective because intuitively uh, this might be a hot take, maybe not, but like, I don't think protests are necessarily the way to go. Like, I'm not sure how much they do um, in the grand scheme of things. And so that was also another piece motivating me to join academia. Like, yeah, you can do activism, but we got to figure out what the most effective way of doing that is and science can help us do that. Hmm. Uh, Annalisa, do you have thoughts on this stuff? I sure do. Um, I think what's interesting and our conversation makes me wonder, it seems like there's a few different pools people can fall into, which is like, to your point, Paul, activism is separate from my academic identity. Those things are separate. It sounds like maybe there is a mixture of the two, a combination of like, I'm an activist. It informs some of the research I do or vice versa. Very like back and forth. Maybe my research informs some of the activism I do. Then it sounds like maybe there's like you were saying scholastic activism so people are actively using their work to promote some sort of agenda there's also a larger conversation of like what is the best vehicle to make change which i think carlos kind of touched on on the end there like if carlos is like oh well academia is where i would do that I'm not sure I would agree. And I think mainly that motivation probably stems from the fact that my activist identity, I view separately from my academic identity. So I feel like I can make change in the world and it's not necessarily tied to my career. You know, I can show up for a protest, for instance, and it's not me, Annalisa, second year PhD student at the grad center. It's just me and Lisa. There's layers. I feel like as an academic people either overlap or don't in grad school. I think those identities frequently fuse. You talk to a lot of grad students who can't really piece apart an academic identity from what else they do outside of grad school you know, you'll hear a grad student say, like, I got lost in grad school or, like, it became all-consuming in my life. And I entered my program, and maybe it was the unique background of experiences that I came into grad school with, but I always knew that, like, if I left academia, it wouldn't shatter my self-concept. Like, I'm pretty strong in the person I am. I feel like if academia didn't work out, I could end up happy and successful in a different career. And so the activism piece then isn't shattered when academia no longer is a concept in my view, 
because like I said, it's constantly, it can continue to churn without academia being salient to me. So I think maybe what we should talk about is like, to the extent that it overlaps, how much can your activism be informed by your scientific pursuits? And then also what I'm trying to grapple with is like, can you be a good activist while also in a system that perpetuates inequality? So like academia is an elite structure. Um, I've had moments this like in general being in grad school and realizing that sometimes I feel out of touch with like everyday Americans, for instance, like me studying in the U S having my research translatable feels like an ethical concern to me that I should be able to present at a conference just as easily as presenting on the street within my community. And I've struggled with this again. I think it might be because my program emphasizes to basic and applied research. And I think science communication in general is an increasing avenue for a lot of academics being able to get on a podcast and be like, Hey, this is my research. This is how it affects everyday people, not just the specific populations I'm studying. And I feel like once we get a better grapple on how activism can either enhance our science or at least make it translatable. So we're no longer in the ivory tower, but we're really just out in the world, I think that will make our science better. Yeah, I feel like that was, there was a lot there. Um, the one thing that I want to come back to though, is uh, the idea of like, can you, is, is research the best way to determine like what's effective in activism? Um, I feel like there's this question. I think there there are some more like psychological questions that are going to be relevant to informing that, um, like basically like social psychology things, like um, I don't know, cognitive dissonance or whatever. Like more of the basic mechanisms for how people think and relate to other people. Um, but then when it comes to like specific interventions or practices, like Carlos was talking about going to protests or, you know, it could be something like, um, you know, Braver Angels is an organization that brings together people from across the aisle to have conversations, things like that. I think that there's, there, I have a lot of questions about how translatable, whatever, like basic theoretical knowledge we have about how people function in social situations. Can we apply any of that into real world contexts and actually learn something? Or I feel like from what I think, I think like we still would need to just do an experiment on the specific intervention or on protests or whatever, and see like in this context, does this seem to be working? And that is not clear to me that 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 is something that can only be studied or should, I guess, be studied in academia. Um, I think a lot of organizations have like internal research 
where they, you know, are testing to see if their thing is effective. Um, and there might be other like nonprofit organizations that are doing that research. And it's, I guess, I think like the research is important, but I'm not sure if it's academic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I want to jump in here. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good point, Rachel. Um, I, I wonder, so, you know, like, th this is all relatively new to me, right? Like how academia works in research. And I guess it's been my assumption that, like, either way, like you probably need to get a PhD so you know how to do research well and effectively um, for industry positions and like testing these sorts of research questions um, in a more applied context that's not academia. Like, do you need a PhD for that? Should you still get one? What are what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think. There's a lot of positions where you'll just like enter the position into in a higher like pay grade and have like a slightly higher position if you have a PhD than if you didn't, but you would still get trained in how to do the work and get the skills that you need, even if you didn't have a PhD. Um, mm. But I, I think there are definitely like positions that just, it's sort of like credentialism. Like they just want you to have a PhD because it's more prestigious and like carries weight with people. Right. I don't know. I mean, personally, uh, I feel like I haven't, I always say this and people like get really upset at me, but like, I feel like I haven't learned much in my PhD program from being like from the program. like whatever I've learned is things that I've kind of like picked up because I had to, but, and like, I feel like people, this is a whole separate thing, so we can take it out if we need to, but like, if I am just like sitting at my computer and I'm like, I have a question, I'm going to Google it and read a paper and try to answer that. Am I, is that me being trained by my PhD program to like learn this method or tool or like gain this expertise? Or is this just like me learning on my own? And like how much of, yeah, sorry, this is a whole separate thing. But, um, so can I, I, I think, yeah, can I ask in. like a question of, of everybody? So, um, like, like even though I think there are, pretty legitimate ways um, to do research with a goal to change the world um, where, you know, you, you can reduce the incentives for, you're not attached to a specific result. I think that that's a clear dividing line to me is like when, when people do research and have sort of an ideological attachment to the results turning out a particular way, I think it's very, um, it leads to a lot of bad science and it's, it's very hard to do um, science properly when you're attached to results, but when you, when you just, uh, a question focused, I, I think those incentives aren't necessarily there. However, I would also say it's not clear to me, especially in social sciences, whether even that work well done is particularly uh, meaningful or useful or effective. Right. So I don't know, Rachel, if your lab participated in Rob Willer's large, um, test of, 
what is the best method for reducing um, effective polarization? I think there were, there was, I wasn't on, I, I submitted one and it was rejected, mm. but other people <laughs> in the lab uh, oh, did not invite me to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, given that uh, our, you recently rejected but yeah carlos i think you probably know there was other people like involved in a project that was accepted yeah i think the facts versus experiences paper um led by emily cuban was on there mm. um so, I, don't, I don't know about the balanced pragmatism but yeah the facts versus experiences definitely was yeah so the i, I guess the point I, i'm trying to make there is just like this was a huge academic effort. Uh, like it took up a lot of time for a lot of money from a lot of academics and, and it was question focused. So, you know, I kind of trust the results. Um, and then this, this in, enormous project, uh, with all this time and all these resources. Um, and, and in the end, like the answer was, oh, like contact is good, right? We, which was, kind of like okay and it, so in theory okay now we've sort of um we've got an answer a question focus answer and we think that uh contact contact is good right so but then what happens right like what wh what's the next step like wh <laughs> I, th I feel like academics often have this fantasy that like you find stuff and then there's other people in society that put it into <laughs> action and that step is so often just like completely missing and so like i honestly struggle to think of any good examples of like social science research uh you know finding facts or like finding effects about the world um that have a clear connection to social changes being enacted in the world right like it's it's actually surprisingly difficult and i'd be curious what everybody's thoughts are on this but i find it surprisingly difficult especially considering that like social science the reason it exists is, is because people wanted to change the world uh and they wanted to learn about the world and learn things and 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 make the world a better place it's so it's surprisingly difficult i think to think of like any sort of success stories so i guess like my other point that I would make is though, like, even though you can do this, like, like, I mean, Carlos, you, like, it's easy to say, well, I don't think protests do anything, but I think the flip side of that is, well, what, <laughs> what's the evidence that social science research does, does anything? I mean, clearly there's lots of social change that has happened, right? Like civil rights movement. I think like for me, like, I think the big, biggest social change I've seen in my life has been um, the LGBT movement gay marriage movement like this is like been a real huge change like since i was a kid and it's like how much of that is thanks to social scientists i don't i really don't think almost any of it is thanks to social scientists but I, i'm willing to be proven wrong but i've asked a lot of people this question and i haven't gotten many convincing answers it's like all these kids who were going to grad school like yeah i'm going to do research and change the world it's like well can you give me an example of that ever happening? Or are you going to be the first? It's like, we all think we're going to be the first. Like even me, if you keep questioning me deep down, I think my research will have some impact on society, but it's like, eh, you think about it objectively. It's like, eh, probably not. Yeah. Um, I'll just say like, I think just jumping off of your example of uh, Rob Willer's project, um, the strengthening democracy challenge. Yeah. Like there are, 
so many organizations that are dedicated to uh, reducing partisan animosity that are not uh, non-academic, just like nonprofit organizations, like those angels. Well, that's uh, one, but like no, there are so many. many. I. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but in the review paper that we just published, um, we sort of like tried to pull in all these organizations and mention them in text and refer to them like as uh, applying different mechanisms. Your review paper you just published and you can't yeah. Well, I haven't read it since uh, <laughs> like, you know, December. We have the world expert on this here. She's I know. There's like, it. okay, there's like Narrative 4. There's the John Haidt one that I'm not allowed uh-huh. to mention because uh-huh. you know, it's John Haidt. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, but there are, there are a lot okay. of okay. organizations yeah. that are, there's actually like over a hundred. Um, and there's like a, there's like a parent or maybe it's just a website, but it like houses all of these initiatives and organizations. And like a lot of them are already doing the things that the Strengthening Democracy Challenge found to, you know, be effective interventions. So I just wanted to, you know, strengthen your point that like finding something that works, uh, like that's cool, but, you know, people already knew that. And we're already doing it and have been for years. So cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can jump in. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I don't go to grad school. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I thought it. I would have to spend all year. <laughs> um, no, no, I would go. Grad school is fun. No, it's not. <laughs> Learn a lot. No, I kid. <laughs> Um, might even become a scientist. <laughs> so I think it's it's a question that needs to be considered. Yeah. Um, so scientists can find what works and what doesn't, but if it's not being applied in a meaningful way, and there's not people translating that research into action, um, how much good is it doing? Um, yeah, I think I wonder what like actual career roles and titles are the people who do this sort of thing. Um, should it fall on the scientists themselves to make sure that science is being applied? Um, is it on policymakers to be looking at research? Is there somebody in between? Um, and yeah, I think like maybe one of those roles could be better for a lot of people who want to make change in the world. Um, but I guess right now, like a lot of what I'm thinking about is what are the gifts that I've been granted by God or the universe or whatever? And how am I going to steward those gifts to, you know, do the most good that I can? Um, and I don't think it's by being a politician, probably. Um, and I don't know if it's by being like somebody protesting on the streets for me. And so, yeah, I just, I, I guess my, my question that I want to throw out there is like, what, who should be responsible for uh, making science into policy and action? Um, is it the scientists themselves? Well, like I said, science communication is a growing industry. And at least in my program, 
we have a few professors that are more applied than basic, I believe, and some that are more basic than applied in the literal sense, you know, um, what psychological processes you're studying, for instance. But we have an arm of our program that focuses on implementation science. So thinking about how you can translate your research findings into like real world policy changes. Like we have a professor in our department, Dr. Sri Golub. Um, I'm taking a psychology of sexuality class with her right now. And a lot of her research focuses on HIV AIDS intervention work, as well as just like assessing sexual health risk and healthcare settings. And one of her big projects right now is looking at the best way to make intake forms when you go to clinics that help, um, you know, enhance sense of belonging and also care when you're actually at like a doctor's office, for instance. That feels very in parity with like, okay, can you have research? And then I would argue, and I'm sure she would argue, and I'm happy to share the podcast with her, but that work is activism. You know, she wants to enhance outcomes for women, um, sexual and gender diverse minorities when they're going to healthcare settings. So like she's had grad students that look at affirmative care for trans women, for instance. And that is a clear way that science can be translated or communicated to like a real clinical population. And I think, again, maybe I'm just plugging my program hard, but I think we do a really good job of like grappling with those larger questions. Like what's the goal of science? How can you communicate science effectively? And how can you bridge seemingly two separate fields? So like if academia is in one pool and like, again, like the community is in the other. So thinking about practical institutions, the populations you're studying, the populations you work with, um, then I think we can help move science a little bit further. So it's not just the paper you publish that two people read in sight. It's like the paper that informs like an actual real world intervention that a community organization will implement. And I've also seen scholars that like they will work on interventions and then the companies they work with don't even end up implementing them you know so like they'll find broad-based effects like there was a really good study by a professor i'm forgetting her name but her she um was in the psych program at princeton with a focus on policy implemented this program to enhance like workers performance at a um, manufacturing plant i believe in china and her intervention showed great effects. You know, workers were more like engaged on the job, better performance. Then when asked, hey, do you want to implement this program? The manufacturing plan was like, nah, we don't really care. And that's fine. Um, <laughs> I think then you again struggle with like, okay, what are we doing here? 
So you can find effects that will make real change. People don't want to accept it. I think that's true of academia or elsewhere. Um, but ideally, at least how I position my work is like, I always hope that even if I'm uncovering some basic social psychological process, so like with interracial interactions, for instance, like stereotype threat is really salient for people when engaging in an interracial interaction. You're worried, regardless of your race, that the person you're interacting with will confirm stereotypes about the race you identify with. And if we know that that's salient and we're thinking about like the real world where like you're constantly engaging with people on the street um, in cafes and bars, like all over, then I would always like to push, okay, so here are some mechanisms that I've identified that can either enhance or alleviate some of the stress people feel when they're in an interracial interaction. Well, then like, how does that play out in the real world? And what can those basic social psychological processes help guide me with some of the applied work? And I honestly would encourage, oh, I think we're moving within, you know, research or social psychology specifically or psychological science broadly, pushing towards getting more applied, but I think it's really a slow process. And I'm wondering if even that push is not even amongst psychologists specifically, but just the way our world is changing. So like an advent of technology, people want podcasts, people want short YouTube videos. They don't want to read these like papers behind paywalls online. So I think the more accessible we can make our science, the again, the better science we will, we will do. And the more people we will reach. And then ideally when you're thinking about these like big level societal changes, I think academia could play a role in that. But to go back to our earlier point, I do think there is a real, real benefit in like the boots on the ground activism. So like the protests, the male campaigns, you know, encouraging your neighbor to go out and vote. I think there is some real benefit in that. And ideally if we work together, so there's people publishing the papers, but there's also people knocking on doors. And I think we can make the best, the most effective change, which is like reaching the most people. Carlos, if you do end up in academia, you and Annalisa should do uh, adversarial collaboration with Paul on, uh, at Paul, you know, <laughs> on whether protests are actually effective because we seem <laughs> to have uh, very different views on that. But um setting that aside um yeah i think that yeah i think that there's a lot of questions here about like what the role of scientists is and what it should be um and it sounds like what you're saying annalisa is like scientists should like there it should be it should be their responsibility not only to do the science but also to communicate it well to anyone who might be able to use it um, and to the community and maybe, you know, anyone who's like taxpayers who are funding it. Um, and I think that 
I agree that uh, someone should be communicating the science. I'm not sure if it is the scientist's responsibility or not. Like I, I know that a lot of universities have dedicated, you know, communications the departments that will like, you know, whose job it is is to translate science into a meaningful thing for the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess regardless of who the person is that's doing it. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is just like scientists should figure out what what's work what works what makes sense um, and then communicate it and then someone else should pick it up from that mm-hmm. communication and then <clears throat> implement it into uh, real mm-hmm. world practices and interventions. And this yeah. is, I mean, I've seen people. Um, point out this, uh, there's a kind of a contradiction right now in our field, right? So, I mean, we've had the replication crisis. Um, you know, we, we think a lot of our results aren't reliable, don't replicate, they've, they've been p-hacked. But at, this, at the same time, there's this push of like, no, we've got to, we've got to translate it to policy as well, right? So like, I mean, I, I kind of think like most of our work's not, not ready to be translated to policy and it, and it's just um yeah i think we're sort of playing with fire to take uh, like a lot of flimsy psychological results and, and start like like you're talking about annalisa like just talking to people in the community about them and teaching them all this stuff that we quote unquote know when it's sort of based on kind of shoddy methods and, and inexact science i mean you mentioned a couple of things where I was just like, yeah, like those areas. So, I mean, stereotype threat, for example, um, lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research on it. It's, it's been a longstanding thing, but like, I, I mean, some academics would argue that the the evidence for stereotype threat is not very strong. Like it's, it's not my area. Like you probably know more than me, but I, I think what I am sure about is that it's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very popular theory. Uh, like it, it's, it's a very convenient ide- ideologically, this theory, right? Because it's, uh, it's an explanation for performance gaps between groups that is like nothing to do with inherent differences between those groups. It's, it's an, it's a social psychological explanation. It's about stereotypes. It's about like sexism, racism, stuff like that. And, and so it's a very, it's like catnip, you know, for the pro- all the progressives in our field is like, ah, you know, all these, all these performing gaps in society, we can explain them via stereotype threat. Uh, I can do research, come up with ways to alleviate that. And that'll, that'll fix all those, all those inequalities and gaps in society. And I just, that's one area where it's just really hard for me to trust the researchers, right? Because I think most people studying it have a particular ideological attachment to the theory, um, are far more open to certain results than other results. Um, and, and, you know, and I've seen pretty major like non-replications of, of some of the original results in that theory. Like personally, I kind of think there's something, there's something to it. I, I've almost like feel like I've almost experienced it myself. If there's people who I think, think I'm an idiot, I feel like I don't function as well in those interactions because of this sort of anxiety about uh, confirming their stereotypes of me. So like my personal intuitions of it, I think there might, there might be something there, but like, it's just hard for me to trust 
the science and the researchers, because I think in these certain areas, our field, we, 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 it's hard for us to be objective. Um, when like all of us or almost all of us really so want something to be true, um, and are attached to results rather than just a question, right? Um, the, another one you touched on is uh, like affirmative care, like gender affirmative care. Like, I mean, that, man, like I almost don't even want to talk about it because it's, it's such a minefield. And I, and I think that like almost all the people doing research on it have a like super strong commitment to like affirmative care being good, being a positive thing, leading to positive results. And at this stage, like the research is so thin and in its infancy, like um, the, this question about puberty blockers, you have these European countries who have sort of like done these investigations and, and they're like um, basically saying, look, the evidence is, is there's not much evidence right now, like about the, these things, their benefits, their harms. Um, so it's kind of dangerous, like to be, to be giving giving them to kids. And like, I see people all the time just being accused of transphobia for even like, like questioning, uh, like affirmative care or, or the value of puberty blockers and, and stuff like that. So again, that's just another area where I just, I worry that ideo ideology is <laughs> really bumping up against science in a harmful way in that in that people just are, are very very attached to certain things being true and, and like not very like not open to count counter evidence or just so attached to an issue that they're like really not able to do objective um objective science about that but like i don't know what's your take because you you seem to be like really like inside labs touching on touching on all these questions like i mean do you think do you think that you guys can just sit back and do objective objective science or or do you do you see i mean through throughout grad school i saw a lot of what i thought was like people's ideology interfering with their science like and i, I like to be totally honest i'm not going to name names but like i one of my research areas in grad school was uh, the effect of economic inequality and i had a i had a senior researcher tell me that like in confidence that if they found uh if, if they found the wrong result they just wouldn't publish it in that area right so if they found inequality correlating like economic inequality correlating with some positive outcome they would just hide the result and and file draw it right so like for me as a young researcher i was like oh wow right so like okay how can i trust the scientific literature on this question when people are it's being put through this this filter where people are really pushing for a certain kind of result like regardless of regardless of what's true right regardless of how the results came out come out so like I just, I worry about that. And when you talk, yeah, stereotype threat and affirmative care and these really politically hot button topics where people have such strong opinions, I just worry that we are not, you know, it's very, very difficult. And it's often a goal that's not achieved to be ob objective and scientific about these things. I'm, re I'm really curious about your take on that. Well, I will start by saying I don't think you can be a scientist and be objective in the sense that you are unbiased. And like I've never, I don't think that's the case. We have lived experiences that inform our work. We have perverse incentives to confirm 
our views about the world, if you think about like just world beliefs, even that people, that things will happen to people because they deserve it. We have these things, whether it's explicit or sub subconscious. Um, and I've, I'll be honest with you. I don't think any researcher, regardless of what you study could be unbiased in the sense that they're not bringing themselves to their work. You hear it all the time, for instance, when people say, oh, you're doing like research, for instance. But I think there is a real value in studying something because you have some personal motivation to study it. And you can say that those experiences inform your science. When you say is it attached to like an ideological belief or maybe, you know, you're spinning around in circles to just confirm what you already not know, but think to be true i think you can get into some murky water which is why we've seen bad science whether that's like perpetuating racial stereotypes or um the belief that like black people are inferior for instance like those are some real negative consequences when you look at racial biases for instance you know if you think about um oh, what's that good book uncovering the biases the way we think see do thinking fast and slow no it's no. jennifer ebernhart um at stanford it's a good book though but basically science has been used as a tool for i mean for perpetuating a lot of bad stuff which is why i think there's also a larger conversation about like academia you know people enter it thinking they're going to change the world which is like we said before but we also think that we're gonna unravel years of harm that we've done as scientists you know whether it's like an unethical series of unethical studies that were first run when uh we started as a field or whether it's you know the replication crisis for instance where people I think have genuine concerns about whether what we're even studying is like true and real to think about Rachel's earlier point about uncovering the truth. Like you can have studies that disconfirm each other. And then you wonder to yourself, well, what it actually is the truth. And for me, I don't think about science as like uncovering the truth per se, is just finding evidence for um, questions that you're trying to solve, I guess. And your point about, for instance, like not having science be informed by questions rather than, let's say, like your belief or like your predictions. I was struggling so deeply with that while you were saying that because right now what's really relevant is like open science practices. So like I pre-register not only my questions, but what I actually think will happen. And if we know that scientists can't be objective, meaning like in this context unbiased, then presumably my predictions that I pre-register will be bias and affirm and affirm confirm or deny my beliefs and then i guess the benefit there is like if you pre-register it you can't just slip it into a drawer when something changes which is oh, good you, you know, definitely can. 
He yeah. like <laughs> because uh, the pre-registrations aren't made public until you choose to make them public. So you exactly. can do whatever you want. Yeah. So I also am grappling with that, like the open science movement, you know, people were telling people to pre-register predictions. I'm like, is it even beneficial to make a prediction as to which way it will go? If we know that people will presumably make predictions that are in line with their beliefs, experiences, and what they want to find. I mean, I think what we're talking about, like, is getting back to questions that Paul and I have discussed a lot on this podcast about like how to make science better. And uh, definitely like pre-registration is not the solution that people thought it was um, to begin with. But I think that that doesn't mean that there aren't, I I don't think so, but, um, but I think that it, why you think you want to know why? Okay. We'll, we'll go on to the short. No, no, no. That's another no. podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, it definitely helps. But I think that just like, I think we are moving towards hopefully um, better methods and tools for making, for like putting up guardrails and making science uh, have the potential to be more objective and less biased. Um, so like, like what I'm envision in the future, like my ideal vision is that everything is a pre-registered report where you like get it accepted at a journal and then you run the studies. Um, because like, that's of course, you know, a very different model and there are some journals that do it, but not everyone. And I think that something like that could actually like remove a lot of the biases that we're concerned about. And so like, I, I kind of like, I agree with you, Annalisa, that what we have right now is not not perfect and you can't be completely objective. But I, I think I'm pushing back a little bit against like you kind of, it sounded like you were just saying like, well, that's impossible. So we should just give up and like not even try. Um, like, I think, yeah, we should continue to do the best we can to be as objective as possible um, and, you know, continue to work on the tools that will help safeguard objective science. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think there are real techniques that we could implement within psychological science to safeguard, like moving beyond pre-registration, something I've talked a lot about, especially in regards to some of my work on intersectionality, something that's seemingly uncommon within psychology, but like is prevalent in other fields for instance, is like author positionality statements. Like you can very explicitly state, you know, again, if your research is informed by live experience or your personal identities, it's helpful to know that, to put that out on the table prior to reporting your study. And it's something I did quite a bit when I was doing independent research in undergrad with the women's sexuality and gender studies department. But it's something that psych doesn't really do. And I think we would really benefit from, like I said, putting our cards on the table and really figuring out how we're approaching our research. And then you can figure out, you know, to your point, Rachel, like safeguarding um, science, like the objectivity, making sure that like what we report is actually in line with what we practice, I think that would really be helpful. 
And um, I see open science as like enhancing that that goal. I all I think intersectionality could benefit from open science and vice versa quite a bit. Rachel, what do you think about positionality statements? <laughs> I have a feeling. <laughs> I have a feeling. I, I, I mean, I've like heard about this. I've heard about this a little bit, but I haven't like given it too much thought. Um, but just like, uh, I mean, one thing that immediately came up for me was like, aren't we, I guess it depends on like how it's done, but like, it seems like all of that's doing is perpetuating stereotypes and putting people in boxes and like, you know, like, like, I guess like, yeah, I'm not really sure what it would look like, but if if what you are what you mean by a positionality statement is like, if I'm publishing a paper, I should say I am a young cisgender bisexual woman who uh, grew up in a different culture, and I, uh, you know, social class, disabilities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All that stuff. Um, Attractiveness level. <laughs> I'm like a seven. I'm a 10. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So like, like what is that? What is that doing? Like, I feel like what you're communicating is that the reader should know, oh, because you're a woman, because you're cisgender, because you're not disabled, like, here's all the things that I should assume about how your research relates to your identities. And, um, you know, if, if it's like a white straight male who is publishing a paper about uh, racial disparities, then I can write that off because he doesn't understand what it's like. Or alternatively, if it's a black person who's writing about it, I could write it off because he's too biased. And like, I feel like we should, it's like introducing ad hominems into the process of evaluating research for no reason. Yeah. I just can't imagine it changing my evaluation of a paper right like because you you read the methods you read the results and then you get to the positionality statement and it, if that i would hope that that wouldn't change the way i evaluated the scientific evidence at all uh because if it did that would kind of be weird i mean it, broadly, statistically speaking maybe you could say like yeah i guess this person is this race or this gender so they have like statistically they're probabilistically biased in a certain direction to to find a certain to find a certain thing but yeah like rachel said i think like yeah at that point you're just kind of stereotyping people and like assuming like because you can find somebody of any race and gender who takes any position on on any real issue right so like positionality yeah, like I mean, these these broad social categories are very um, influential on our lives and stuff like that. But they they not they don't they don't really determine what an indiv- an individual they don't fully determine what an individual's own unique biases or perspectives are. Uh, and so, acting like they do seems slightly problematic to us. I guess, like. We don't want to get too derailed in talking about positionality statements. So maybe like what's you've probably thought about it more than us, Annalisa. So what, what would the response be to this this kind of concern that Rachel and I raised? 
Sorry, Carlos, we, we're just leaving you out right at the moment. But if you have thoughts on positionality statements. I think I have thoughts on this. Um, okay, well, I also want to hear from you, Annalisa, so please follow up after me. But, yeah, so I could probably benefit from, like, a clearer example of what a positionality statement would look like, but from my perspective, it sounds sort of like a conflict of interest sort of deal, like like my identity uh, informs my research. Um, it motivates me um, like towards or it biases me towards wanting to see a particular conclusion. And, you know, I don't think I agree with Rachel and Paul that that sort of information shouldn't be used to evaluate the scientific evidence. But I do think that it serves a useful cue as to how closely you should be looking. For instance, there's a lot of dairy-funded uh, research, dairy industry-funded research showing that dairy is super good for you. But then the research that isn't funded by the dairy industry shows the opposite thing. And so, you know, that's I think there's a lot of vegans who will be like, oh, dairy funded industry uh, or dairy industry funded research. Like, you know, that's that's fake news. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't take that position, but I do think that's sort of an interesting thing. Um, and so, you know, like, let's look closely at the information and evaluate the evidence more critically. Um, and so if I'm understanding what a positionality statement is, I do think that like it could be useful in like for the reader and de determining like how closely you should critique the evidence. Um, so yeah, I I don't think I think it's like one more added step in the right direction, but I do see how it could be used in a not awesome way. <laughs> yeah, I mean I definitely think there are pros and cons to using it. And I'm just saying it might be a useful tool that we can implement within psychological science. I don't think it's an end-all be-all, but to your point, when thinking about like identifying areas where the research might be biased or even motivated by like our personal identities, because we do it all the time, critiquing post-hoc, you know, old psychological experiments that were primarily on let's say stanford undergraduate students like thinking about those populations is different than how we like generalize to the public and so we could do the same thing with researchers and i think it's really just a way the same way a pre-registration would hold an author accountable to their project it's something that we could use as a tool to hold authors accountable to their own personal biases and motivations so, and for clarity author positionality statement statements typically happen before you read the paper so it would be author positionality and then you would read the paper but like you're saying that might introduce all kinds of different noise and how you're reading the paper, evaluating the paper, and then also might contribute to some of the categorization that we know is harmful. So, Annalisa, if you were reading, if you were going to read a paper um, about uh, transgender issues, and there, there was a statement at the beginning that said, 
you know, disclaimer, I'm a transgender uh, woman, uh, the main author. Would you, would that make you um, be more or less uh, accepting of, or like, you know, thoughtful about the critique, the methods and, and sort of like the conclusions of the paper? I think to Carlos's point, like thinking about the added benefit of knowing an author's identity prior to reading a paper is helpful to the extent that it's helpful. I would imagine learning about a trans issue as you describe it from someone who is actually trans identifies as transgender would be beneficial to reading the paper. So the extent to which I like, I'm like, Oh, maybe they're, they have more credentials on the topic or they have some experience actually understanding what being trans would be. I think I would not necessarily if it's like a, good bad but i would take it with a grain of salt which is like okay this is someone who might have some domain expertise on the topic and so i might evaluate that more positively than someone who's speaking about trans issues but isn't themselves trans or understands what the trans experience would look like would you be more or less accepting of a paper um about the israeli-palestinian conflict if it was written by an israeli researcher I mean, I think it's the same question, just repeated. So I believe that there is, again, domain expertise of having someone who has a lived, a legitimate lived experience and identity within a particular topic that is valuable to evaluating, you know, the information that they provide. So like, to Carlos's point, if you have dairy farmers publishing papers about whether milk is beneficial to the American diet, I mean, I would, again, take that with a grain of salt. So now we're getting into, like, I think, um, like, science literacy, which is a, a different kind of peripheral topic, but still relates to activism like if you're thinking about activism where like everyone has their own angle and positionality um to my earlier point i think why not put it on the table so if you're a trans person writing about trans issues why not put it on the table if you're an israeli citizen writing about the israel-palestine conflict why not put it on the table it clearly changes how that information should be evaluated yeah i mean i think like the the point that i uh was trying to get at which like my intuition is that um people would have kind of the opposite reactions uh which i feel like you didn't fully answer my question about like how would you like what would what what would be your take on the paper or like how would you, how likely would you be to accept it if it's written by an Israeli author? Um, my intuition is that like there are certain groups who, if you're writing as a member of that group, that would mean that um, your your work should be counted more and like it should be 
you know, like you're saying, like, it's, you know, an important perspective. It's, it's, would you would have like a positive reaction to reading a paper written by a trans person as opposed to other groups where it would have kind of the opposite effect, where you have more of a pushback, like with the dairy industry, um, or, you know, I think a lot of people would have the same view on uh, like the Israeli-Palestinian example that I brought up, where you being a member of that group just makes you biased and makes the work less uh, trustworthy. And mm. I think that that's a real problem if like the same process, the same like template that we're talking about of like a person who's related to the topic disclosing their relation to the topic leads you to either trust the paper more or less. And the only thing that's different is what group is it? How much power does the group have? Is it a group that you like or dislike? Um, and I don't, this isn't like, you know, personally about you, but like just in general, I think that people are, would just bring their own biases in and either discount or, give more weight to a paper um, just based on whether what they think about that group identity. Yeah. I think to that point though, people already do that because you can retroactively look up the identity or figure out who the person writing the paper is and discount it. I'm not if it's blind review though, because like in theory, like the positionality statement would be, in the actual paper that's going through this, the blind review process. Um, so there could be some context in which um, like this process, like uh, the Rachel's describing of like waiting or discounting is happening because of the existence of the positionality statement where it otherwise wouldn't have. Right. Potentially. I mean, I think we don't only care about, like whether a paper is accepted, you know, through the review process, but also about how people read yeah. it and uh, take it once it's published. Yeah, well, it, yeah. once it's once it's published, what's if your name's on the paper? <laughs> if your name's on the paper and your well, photograph, just, you know, your photograph is online. What, what, you're just taking up words by saying, "Oh, yeah, this is my race. This is my gender." I mean, it's not always obvious, you know, well, a paper guess, yeah. about the the female mentorship. Thing, like mm, you know. right right that's true all right well final final statements i i should i need to go help my wife with our sick son uh and i really appreciate both you guys taking the time i actually found it a really interesting uh discussion um and i appreciate you guys joining us a lot uh if anybody has some final thoughts speak now or forever <laughs> hold your peace Okay, I, I can go. Um, I uh, I feel like we got a little bit derailed from like the main topic of um, activism and, and, and academia, but that always happens. Um, but just like to get back to that, I would just say, you know, to any young would-be academics, grad, potential grad students out there, and especially to Carlos, um, I I think that like you have a lot of potential to do a lot in the world and um, a lot of good. And there's, it's easy. I think like Annalisa's story about how she got into academia and my story is like pretty similar, you know, just kind of like falling into it. And this is where I see myself and 
it's like very easy to just follow the path that you uh, see others around you doing. You know, you go through college and you're surrounded by professors and grad students and you real, you know, um, and it's hard to go out there into the real world and try to find something that is effective and works for you and make you happy. And, and But I think it's worth putting in the effort to try to find that thing as opposed to um, just kind of continuing down a path uh, that isn't necessarily going to be the best one for you. And I'll just say last thing is, there's a, I'm going to plug effective altruism here, even though I don't like 100% agree with a lot of what they say and do, but there's um, like 80,000 hours uh, website where you can go and sort of answer some questions and it'll help direct you towards 80,000 hours is like the amount of time that you would spend in a career. And so it's like directing you towards what's the most effective way to spend your life and uh, have a career that's most meaningful and impactful for you. Um, so that's uh, something resource that I'd recommend. We'll put it in the show notes. Please do. Yeah. Um, closing thoughts from Carlos, eat more plants. Um, uh, this was a, yeah, very good conversation. I've been so whenever I first met Rachel, it was like within the first month, we had a conference um, for the Center for the Science of Moral Understanding. And that was the first time me and Rachel discussed like my future. And yeah, she didn't hesitate being like, don't go into academia. <laughs> um, I never so this has Sorry been a question on, <laughs> this has been a question on my mind for a bit. Um, and I think everybody here has given me some pretty valuable thoughts to sit on over the next year until I maybe apply or maybe don't. So, so thank you all. Yeah, final thoughts from Annalisa. I would say you can go to grad school if you want. I think... <laughs> I think my philosophy on life is like life is nonlinear. If you go to grad school, graduate and realize you don't want to do it, it's fine. And like you will change that path. So this is speaking directly to Carlos. Um, however, in terms of our conversation, I would just encourage people to start thinking about how you can translate what you study so your scientific pursuits into like real valuable takeaways for the communities you seek to serve if you see yourself as an act both an activist and a scholar and i would also encourage you to think critically about what again lived experiences or personal identities help shape your work um and also motivate that stake in science and grapple with how science is not objective it's political it's biased it's messy and what you bring to the table is valuable so much as you can really introspect and think about how it shapes your work cool well i guess we'll we'll leave it there thank you guys again um Hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, what's what? What do people have planned? I know Rachel, you're moving, I'm moving. so that's 
that's probably going to suck. Carlos, Annalisa, what are you guys up to? Got lots of dishes to do. Um, I've sort of let them all build up over the week. Nice. Um, put on put on back episodes of more of a comment and oh, for sure. It'll, uh, yeah, actually, more of a comment than a question is my uh, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll meal prep once a week. Uh, uh, that takes like a good two hours. So <laughs> yeah, I'll turn on my favorite podcast. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to going to a BIPOC murder mystery comedy show tonight with a friend visiting from California. So I work at an immersive theater on the weekends and we host, it's a fusion of like theater experience and immersive puzzles. So I will be enjoying that tonight with my friend. So BIPOC. So what, what makes it BIPOC? Are the, are the murderers BIPOC or are the murder victims BIPOC? Or is it all just um, BIPOC on BIPOC violence? Because that seems kind of problematic, to be honest. <laughs> it's BIPOC produced and centered. So the characters of the show, yes, are all identify as either Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And it's a classic revamp of how a lot of narratives focused on BIPOC people are centered around trauma, violence, and so to reshape that story to the comedy piece, it's a little play on how murder can be funny, that, like, stories don't always have to be dark, but they can, you know, add light to the joy and experience of people. See the show. I think we've got a line for canceling on Elisa. Murders (laughs) can be funny. (laughs) <laughs> murders of BIPOC people can be funny <laughs> yeah. is, uh, right, right 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 we can we can cut this out if you want. I realize <laughs> no, I'm bringing myself into a hole but I'm happy to share the website with you no. alright yeah 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 absolutely I mean yeah cool um, alright guys right. thanks again have a, have a great weekend yeah. And, uh, this was yeah. great yeah. thank you don't include that sound bite <laughs> <laughs> see you see you